Good morning, everyone. This is Epiphany. Well, it's the Sunday after Epiphany, Epiphany Sunday. And as you know, the pipes are frozen at the church, and so we're not going to be having service today. But I thought maybe what I would do is maybe go over what I would have talked about this morning a little bit for you and give you some things to think about this week if you're interested. Um, My sermon text was going to be Matthew chapter 2, verses 1 through 6, which said this, Now when Jesus was born in Bethlehem of Judea in the days of Herod the king, behold, there came wise men from the east to Jerusalem, saying, Where is he that is born king of the Jews? For we have seen his star in the east and are come to worship him. When Herod the king had heard these things, he was troubled in all Jerusalem with him. And when he had gathered all the chief priests and scribes and all the people together, he demanded of them where Christ should be born. And they said unto him, In Bethlehem and Judea, for thus it is written by the prophet, For thou, Bethlehem, and the land of Judea, are not the least among the princes of Judah, for out of thee shall come a governor that shall rule my people. Let us pray, Lord. I pray you would illuminate the word of God, that it would go forth even from my home today, that it would speak to the hearts of those who uh, were not able to gather Sunday together. And um, help us, Lord Jesus, uh, to love each other and to grow in grace together. Amen. Our readings would have come from Daniel chapter 4 and Matthew chapter 2. And Daniel chapter 4 is the story of how Daniel prophesied to Nebuchadnezzar about his pride and how God is going to bring him down to be like a beast of the field, but he will then restore him. In that story, we find that Nebuchadnezzar has what most people would consider a conversion experience and uh, becomes a believer and humbles himself before the Lord. Now, we don't know all the details of what followed after this in his life, but we do know that something happened there uh, to Nebuchadnezzar that uh, that changed his life forever. And um, anyway, there is some tie to the story here today in that. And Matthew chapter 2, of course, is the full text of the story. But the tie to the story is that there were people who were Gentiles who were not did not convert to Judaism, who um, became believers in the one true God of heaven. And they formed a uh, a group or whatever. Their teachings were passed down. Some of these, some people believe these, this was the uh, establishing of the group called the Magi. Magi, M-A-G-I, where we actually get the term magic from. And so the Magi, these wise men, uh, are talked about and mentioned here and have been very, very much so a part of Christian history. In fact, for 1,700 years uh, or more, um, the church has celebrated the 12 days of Christmas and the Feast of Epiphany. Millions of people around the world have different traditions among Protestants, Catholics, Orthodox, all of them. Most of them include remembrances of several events in Jesus' life. They believe, these historians believed, it's hard to know exactly, that from the birth 
to the visit of the Magi, the baptism by John, uh, and the miracle of the wedding feast at Cana of Galilee, or all these things uh, where the water was turned to wine. All of them happened on the exact same date in history. And so they picked January the 6th. I think it's pretty unlikely that all these things happened on those same days, but the church for you know, hundreds and hundreds of years has celebrated it this way. So it's at least definitely worth noting. Uh, here in our text, in Matthew, if you remember, Matthew has given the genealogy of Joseph, and he's he's dealt with the visitation by the angel, but he does not, in his account, uh, talk about the family's travel to Bethlehem on the night of the birth of the Christ child. His narrative goes from uh, Joseph keeping Mary as his wife, but not consummating the marriage until the. then it goes to the visitation of the Magi. So let's pick it up here in verse 1 of Matthew chapter 2. Now when Jesus was born in Bethlehem, in the days of Herod the king, behold, there came wise men. Wise men is where we, if you look at that word, it's actually Magi from the east to Jerusalem. So see how the day of the narrative is the day of the Magi. It's when they come to Jerusalem here. The King James reads wise men, but they were most certainly were these magicians. You might even call them sorcerers. And uh, I'll talk to you a little bit about that. Now, um, Daniel 4, they, even though they were not God's chosen people, the, ch- the children of Israel, right? Uh, these people were taught to use the stars as a witness of what God was doing in the world. There are some scriptures that allude to this fact, and there's a, there are a lot, if you read historical documents, early church documents, ancient documents, there was always this idea that looking at the stars would tell you something. And... You know, we have constellations. Uh, we have some references in Job. Psalm 19 says, The heavens declare the glory of God. So it's not just that the lights are shining in the sky and that they're beautiful to look at and they make you feel small. And, and But uh, some people believe that a careful reading, you know, of these stars could help you to know and understand things. So apparently, though, they saw his star and said that we we have seen his star uh, in the east and have come to worship him. So we know they came from west of uh, Jerusalem. West of Jerusalem would take you into the Middle East, you know, into the land of the former Babylonians, the Iran and Iraq and all that kind of stuff. So, you know, one day perhaps astronomers can learn what these people saw. Maybe they can unravel these messages. Who knows? Maybe one of the... Young people in our church will uh, be able to read them. You know, with the miracle of technology that we have, we could totally recreate the night sky uh, at the time, uh, you know, of the birth of Christ, at the time of the prophets. We know the cycles of the moon, the stars, the sun, all these things. And so they've been doing that. There's There's actually a project called the Star of Bethlehem. It's interesting. I don't know exactly how accurate it is. But it looked interesting to me with some theories on what the star over Bethlehem was. But we're not going to get into that today. So have we discussed before, we don't know how many magi there were that day. A lot of people say three because they say they brought gifts of gold, frankincense, and myrrh. But we don't know that. We, we know there were three gifts. Uh, 
uh, we don't know that the, we're three magi. There's also a verse in the Psalms that talk about these kings coming, these three kings, um, and some people associate that with the Magi. I don't really think it is associated with it, but that's where we get the song, We Three Kings of Orient are, and we even sing it uh, on in church. In fact, we should change our hymn to be a little more biblically accurate, uh, I believe, and take the three out of there, because we don't know that for sure. Anyway, these Magi who have had the imaginations for Christians uh, excited for thousands of years, they came to King Herod, to the seat of the power of the children of Israel. A lot of people, when they hear the story, they get confused. We hear about all these different leaders. But Herod the king was the ruler of the Jews. The Romans had allowed the Jews to have their own government beneath the Roman government, and Herod was a Jew. And he ruled the Jews. And so you'll hear, anyway, lots of different leaders. But King Herod particularly, who was a Jew, uh, whether he was a believing Jew or not, you know, obviously not a good man, not a godly man in any way. But so these magi, they come to him. They're thinking, well, certainly this guy will know, you know. So... Imagine what it would have been like to see this entourage of these strange people coming to Jerusalem, and they're coming to ask, so where is he? You know, and people have pictured this entourage, you know, a hundred camels and all these servants and gifts, and who knows what they had with them. Uh, and there's been a lot of artwork uh, done about this. But these Persians, Babylonians, you know, they've read the news of the birth of the Son of God in the stars somehow. And they have come to Jerusalem to King uh, Herod to say, hey, where is he? We would like to worship him. So they, there seemed to be a degree of certainty and expectation that the Jews would know about this incredible event in their own history. But as we will see, they didn't, uh, they had not even noticed. So much so that when it came time for Mary uh, to give birth to Christ, there wasn't even you know enough notice of it that there would even be a place for her in Bethlehem, not even a bed for the mother of the Christ uh, to, to give birth. So here in verse 2 of Matthew, we hear the question uh, and the reasoning, the reason for their long journey. I, I found it interesting that these words that I'm about to read were spoken by uh, by them to King Herod in his court. But later when they stand in the presence of the king of glory, uh, none of the nothing that they said is even recorded. So here's what we hear from the Magi. Verse 2, Where is he that is born king of the Jews? For we have seen his star in the east and are come to worship him. Now the focus here in this narrative uh that would have been so obvious for those living in that day, the, the momentous reality would be that Magi Persian heathens were coming to worship the Messiah after seeing his star, but Israel missed it. That, that, that is a huge part of the story. And in fact, that's what people celebrate on Epiphany. They celebrate the fact that God came unto his own, his own received him not. Um, they literally did not welcome him in their homes. You know, this becomes a figure of how, uh, you know, he came into his own, his own received him not, and how he then turns to the Gentiles. Uh, the story of the Magi is amazing, but the story of the Jews and their carelessness and how it turns to an unthinkable slaughter 
of the children in the area around Bethlehem, um, it, it, the whole thing is a stark, stark contrast. The horrific scene would be a beginning of sorrows inflicted on God's people who had forgotten their God and his sacred words and were caught like the foolish virgins, virgins who were unprepared when the bridegroom came, you know, in the parable of Christ. They missed it, and instead they were left in darkness and grief. In verse 3, it says, When Herod the king had heard these things, he was troubled, and all Jerusalem with him. They were not excited. I mean, you know, it's one thing to not have noticed, but now you have someone telling you about it, which you you might think, well, maybe maybe it would even, you know, soften the hard heart of Herod, you know, that the Messiah has finally been born. Maybe they had given up hope. It had seemed so many years. It had been some 400 years since any prophet was known in Israel to be speaking to God's people. And so that's a long time. And so to them, it may have seemed like an old ancient, you know, tale of old, so separated in time. I mean, uh, we can't really conceive of this. I mean, 400 years uh, is so long. And so they maybe just had forgotten about it and had just given up on it. And they had gone to, you know, seeking their own completely. Well, verse so in verse 4, uh, it comes, it says, And when he gathered all the chief priests and scribes and the people together, he demanded of them where Christ should be born. So Herod's not a, a, uh, happy. Uh, he's upset. And he wants to know where he would be born. So what's interesting to me is that they go to the priest, and the priests know where he's going to be born. So even though Herod and maybe a great deal of the people had given up on this, the, there were people that knew. So they looked. They said, he's going to be born in Bethlehem. That's what it was written of the prophet. Uh, verse 6, Thou Bethlehem in the land of Judah are not the least among the princes of Judah, for out of thee shall come a governor that shall rule my people. This is from Micah chapter 5, verse 2. Now their apostasy and arrogance go so far as to cause them to turn back to God's word to find the answer where he would be born. But even though they evidently believed Micah's prophecy, they had no fear of God. They, they were like Nimrod and his followers, uh, more than like Noah and Shem. Uh, here they believed God was in the heavens, but they believed they could build a tower you know, and overthrow him as Lucifer had thought to himself. I will ascend, you know, and I will make myself great like God. Herod, who was a Jew and king of the Jews, would be like Pharaoh, whose fear drove him to the despicable act of killing Israel's children. The people were troubled, but not because Messiah had been born, and now they wanted to find him to worship him, but because they wanted to cast him out. And as we know, they eventually are the ones who found him and killed him despite all of the proofs of his divinity. Now, verse 7 of Matthew 2 says, Then Herod, when he had privately called the wise men, he inquired of them diligently, What time did the star appear? Uh, he's trying to get a timeline in his head so he can know how he can deal with this horrible problem. Um, and he sent them on to Bethlehem and said, Go and search for the child, and when you have found him, found him bring word to me again that I may come and worship him. Um, sound like nice words, but he meant none of them. Uh, verse 9, when they heard the king, they departed, and lo, the star which they saw in the east went before them till it came and stood over where the young child was. We won't get into it, but, 
you know, the whole idea that this there is something that's over Bethlehem, that there's a star, that's amazing. Uh, I don't know what that is exactly. There are many theories to what that is, but, um, you know, so this precedes the Magi, and they go to Bethlehem. Now, you will notice here, uh, verse 10, when they saw the star, they rejoiced with exceeding great joy. So they were they're like, okay, we're on the right track. So when they get to verse 11, it says something that you can miss. It says when they were coming to the house, okay? They were no longer at the inn. They were no longer, you know, either in a cave or a stable or whatever. They were in a house. They were in a different place. Some say this was, you know, up to two years or a year and a half later. Some say it was some weeks later. It doesn't really give us an exact time for these things, but they were in a house. They saw the young child with Mary's mother. They fell down and worshipped him. And when they had opened their treasures, they presented unto him gifts of gold, frankincense, and myrrh. And being warned of God in a dream that they should not return to Herod, they departed into their own country another way. So here these folks are. They've seen a star. These are not Jews, but they're people who are believers in the Messiah some way. We don't understand if that's through uh, the prophecies uh, you know, that were passed on to them or the, the teaching of Daniel or whatever. We're not sure. But we are sure that God warned them in a dream. And um, it seems that God sends a lot of dreams to people, especially to heathens, uh, and warns them of things. We we know um, Pharaoh, and we know Nebuchadnezzar, uh, and and here we have here we have this. And there's several warnings to heathens uh, about things in a dream. So here we have it. Now they departed. Behold, the angel of the Lord appeared to Joseph in a dream, saying, "Arise, take the young child and his mother, flee into Egypt, for thou will be there until I bring thee word. For Herod will seek the young child." To destroy him. When he arose, he took the young child and his mother by night and departed into Egypt. We talked a few weeks ago when we were dealing with the Advent thing of hope um, about how this story is very similar to more than one Bible story. We have Joseph having to go down into Egypt. Uh, we also have shadows of the story of the deliverer Moses being born and a pharaoh causing a great slaughter on the young children, which ends up being the reason why Moses is put in the, uh, you know, in the little boat on, on the river uh, to save his life. And so these, these shadows of these Old Testament stories are seen here in this story as well. So he arose, he took the young child and his mother, and he went into Egypt, just like Joseph had gone to Egypt. And as a result, that's how they, all of Israel was saved. Here we have Joseph going in Egypt again, going with his son, uh, they will come out of Egypt. Okay, and he was there to his death that the, might be fulfilled by the prophet saying, "Out of Egypt have I called my son." Verse sixteen. Herod, when he saw that he was mocked of the wise men, was exceeding wroth, and he sent forth and he slew all of the children that were in Bethlehem and in all the coast thereof, from two years old and under, according to the time which he had diligently inquired of the wise men that it might be fulfilled, which was spoken of by the prophet, saying, In Ramah there was a voice heard, lamentation and weeping in great mourning, Rachel weeping for her children, and would not be comforted because they were not. Now, if you remember, Bethlehem 
where these children were killed is where Rachel, Jacob's wife, the mother of Joseph and Benjamin, the Benjamites, uh, uh, this is where Rachel was buried. So she's a, you know, mother of one of the patriarchs. She's buried in Bethlehem. And so here, as the mother of the Benjamites who dwelt in the area, she kind of represented the mother of the nation of Israel in this sense. Jeremiah had likened the mourning of Israel, who had been taken captive and laid waste by her enemies in this time, uh, you know, by talking about Rachel mourning for her children. There was a great slaughter uh, in their time when, uh, when Israel was judged by God at that time. Israel was judged by God, and, uh, you know, the whole area was laid waste, and Jeremiah is prophesying about this. Um, and so they're comparing that time of great weeping and mourning after God's judgment to the same exact thing happening where um, judgment is being poured out here. Now, there's a lot to consider here about this event, and, and it's hard to talk about, really, just the thought of this senseless murder of these little children, the pain, the mourning, the, the, oh, it must have been terrible that, you know, Herod would be so callous in his heart that he would send people to the area and just say, kill all of the children uh, under a certain age. This is, you know, horrific. And uh, Josephus wrote about several instances where Herod did very despicable things like this. So this is not uncharacteristic. Now, Josephus did not include this event in his history. Some people actually use this as a proof um, that the Bible isn't true because this event is in it, and it's not in Josephus. Um, But a lot of the things Herod did were so much worse than this that maybe killing a few children in this area. Some people, you know, they say it was hundreds and thousands and all this kind of stuff. Um, a more reasonable look at it might be that there were, you know, less than a hundred, which, I mean, if it was one, it would be horrible. Uh, some even say 20 to 30 children were killed probably based on the population. Bethlehem had a population of about 2,000 people at that time, according to some historians. So we don't really know, but we know the event happened because it's in Scripture. We know that it was a picture, and and not just a picture, but it was the judgment of God. Uh, And this has got to be difficult to deal with. This is not just Herod's a bad guy. Uh, No, God God orchestrated these events, and these events were brought about as the judgment of God, just like when Israel was taken captive uh, over and over again, when they were judged by their enemies, they, these things were done as judgment on the people of God. First Peter 4.17 says, Judgment begins first at the house of God. So as it was in Jeremiah, so it was when the Son of God was born. As horrible as God's judgments are for us, His kindness and His mercy is so much greater. Weeping may endure for a night, but joy does come in the morning. This was indeed God's judgment. It came to rest on the innocent children who had not even lived long enough to have done good or evil. Many times God seems to be unjust in what he does, but he is not. 
These things, as do all the things that God does, had more than one purpose. As painful and unthinkable and as seemingly senseless as the death of these little ones was, it had served the purpose of marking the place of the Messiah's birth so that it could be seen to have taken place where the Scripture said it would. But it also uh, would keep the would-be pursuers off the trail and out of his life of the Messiah for for 30 years as he developed and he grew. Now verse 19 says, When Herod was dead, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared in a dream to Joseph in Egypt, saying, Arise and take the young child and his mother and go into the land of Israel, for they are dead which sought the young child's life. And he arose and he took the young child and his mother and came into the land of Israel. But when he heard that Achilles did reign in Judea in the room of his father Herod, he was afraid to go. Notwithstanding being warned of God in a dream, he turned aside into the parts of Galilee, and he came and dwelt in the city of Nazareth, that it might be fulfilled which was spoken by the prophets, he shall be called a Nazarene. Now, there's a lot that can be said here, but don't miss in the reading here that Herod uh, dies soon after he does this horrible act, um, and that Joseph comes out of Egypt and instead of going to live in Jerusalem or, you know, even in Bethlehem, he goes to Nazareth to live. And there's something interesting here in this. <clears throat> it says, uh, he came to dwell in the city of Nazareth that it might be fulfilled, which was spoken by the prophets. He shall be called a Nazarene. So, you know, maybe a challenge for a little bit might be to say, well, where does it say that? You know, any time the scripture says that, I always look it up so that I can understand it. And you can look that up all you want, but you're not going to find anywhere in the Old Testament where it says the words that he's going to be from Nazareth or that he shall be called a Nazarene. Um, and for some, this is a difficult passage that even casts doubt on the truth of scripture. But of course, we know uh, and by faith we believe that it's impossible. We know that we must be missing something, that the Scripture is perfect. It is inerrant in every way. Um, there are no mistakes in it. God has preserved it for his people. So so we know we're missing something. If it says, and it, you know, either, either it doesn't mean what it sounds like it's saying or there's another explanation. And in this case, um, I think that what we're looking at here is where we are not understanding what is being said. Um, now, in addition, nowhere in the New Testament does it say anywhere that anyone called Jesus a Nazarene. So, But if we take a, to look at a couple things, we might learn something here about the Bible. And, you know, then we can go to some important truths about Christ that we can apply to ourselves. Now, first off, if your version of the Bible had quotation marks around, he shall be called a Nazarene, you know, as if that's like a quote from some place, understand that um, there are no quotation marks in, you know, in Greek and certainly not in Hebrew. Uh, and so this would be uh, an addition, you know, that to, to this that, that people had added. So there, it's not saying that... Um, you know, there's a quote from the Old Testament. 
what I believe here, and I did a lot of reading about this, is that the Bible saying is that him being from Nazareth is fulfilling something that is being said by the prophets. And I think what it is, and I could go into the whole long thing of what I did to try to come up with my opinion about this, but I'll just lay it out here. Um, the, the the truth that is, that's resonated in the Old Testament is that Christ would not be you know, born from an important family and he would not be considered a great man from a great, you know, this is something, you know, we read in Isaiah 53, right? Um, Who hath believed our report? You know, th- this is unbelievable what I'm getting ready to say. Who hath believed our report? You know, Isaiah 53. And to whom is the arm of the Lord revealed? Now the arm of the Lord here being Christ, because we will see this. Uh, For he, verse 2, shall grow up before him as a tender plant and as a root out of a dry ground, he hath no form nor comeliness. And when we shall see him, there is no beauty that we should <clears throat> desire him. So you see this in Isaiah 53. It's actually in some other places too. But basically, Messiah is not going to come from an important place. He's going to be coming from a lowly place. So some believe that what what he was saying is Nazareth is a low-down, rotten place. The Bible says he would be a tender plant, a root out of a dry ground, you know, uh, that that he's not going to come from somewhere important. And, oh, yeah, he comes from, you know, Nazareth, which is a pretty bad place, a pretty rough place. If you remember, when Philip told Nathaniel... that he had found the Messiah in John chapter 1. You can read it in verse 45. Philip finds Nathanael and he says, We found him whom Moses and the law and the prophets did write, uh, Jesus of Nazareth, the son of Joseph. And Nathanael's first reply, this, this man has no guile, that Jesus says has no guile. His first reply is, Can there any good thing come out of Nazareth? <laughs> and so, you know, that's a, that's a question worth asking. Can any good thing come out of Nazareth? Well, we know the answer. Um, the Scripture teaches this principle: uh, not, you know, no flesh is going to get glory that that it's not by might, it's not by power, it's by the Spirit of the Lord. That God is not going to call many wise men, many important men, according to the flesh, because God wants it to be seen uh, that God is going to conquer the world through weakness. He came in the world rich, but he uh, made himself poor that we might be rich. So all of the things that God, God is going to take the weak things of the world to confound the wisdom of the wise that no flesh shall glory in his presence. There's another thing going on in here where it says, you know, that he shall be called a Nazarene, not not only to say he's going to come, you know, uh, saying that Nazareth is a, you know, a fulfillment of the prophecy of him coming from a lowly place. And when we say, he, you know, he shall be called a Nazarene, it also says that his name shall be, you know, called Emmanuel, meaning God with us. But no one referred to Jesus as Emmanuel. That wasn't like an alternate name for him. But we read this in the scripture. So when someone says something like that, what they're saying is, it's like um, in a negative sense, someone might say, uh, you know, he, he, you know, he's from Vegas, or he's from, you know, he's from Sodom, or you know, it, you know, in our country, if you said someone was from, 
you know, New Jersey, you know, or someone was from Queens or I don't know, you know, Harlem or whatever. There are negative connotations that embody things like Las Vegas, like I was just saying earlier. Um, and so there is a lowness that's expressed here. And um, anyway, I'm kind of rambling on here, but, you know, I did a bunch of reading about it because it was very perplexing to me. It seemed like there should be a quotation uh, reference in the Old Testament, and there's there's just not one. So... So we see a few things from this story, and I won't go much longer. You know, I, I actually feel a little bit funny trying to do a sermon this way. I'm not really preaching. I'm just talking to you. Um, and maybe I'm not um, that great of a talker when it comes to talking my sermons out. So I apologize if this is, you know, not up to par. I would have done better in the pulpit today. But... <laughs> uh, but the but but the story the part of the story of Epiphany that sort of you know I was being pulled to this week was the death of these children, and sometimes very difficult, very painful things, even God's judgment comes on us, and bad things happen in our lives. We and and not not every bad thing is a judgment of God upon us. That's not what I'm saying at all. Uh, but what I am saying is that. God does things and allows things, and however you want to put it, brings about things that just seem horrible. Um, but he is he's the author and finisher of our faith. He's telling a story. Now, these children, as horrible as it is, as horrible as these mothers and fathers who were just aching with pain and sorrow, God used that to mark the birthplace of the Messiah. He used it to call back their minds to the time of the deliverer being born in Israel and Pharaoh killing the children. I think I think they in the mind of the Jews they've always seen the the Egyptians as the bad guys and you know now they were seeing that they were bad guys that their own king Herod would put to death you know their own children. One historian, and I, I, I tried to read a lot about this. In fact, it was so puzzling to me. Um, I couldn't really nail it down. But apparently, some historians and historians believe that one of Herod's own children were born and, and at that age group and had been killed as a part of this order by Herod. And there was a saying that went out saying that it would better to be uh, a pig than the son of Herod. And it was just, it was a mark of his depravity and of his ungodliness. Now you have to understand, he was the king of the Jews at the time. So this is what had become of the people of God who had had the law, who had had the prophecies, that have had deliverance and the miracles. And all of this time, what had become of them is that their their leader was was a man named Herod, an ungodly heathen, and he had become as evil as Pharaoh. God does these things as to show the people. You know, it's like when the children of Israel wanted a king, God told them, you don't want a king like the rest of the nations have. And they said, yes, we do. And he gave them that. The heart of man is so depraved uh, that left to his own without the Spirit of God, he would sink into depravity. And what we'll see is even if he had all the rules of the law, he would sink in depravity still. The little 
the laws have great benefit for those who follow them, but really it all because man is so sinful, the knowledge of his sinfulness uh, seems to even drive pe- people that haven't been regenerated who know God's word oftentimes become even more depraved than the people who've never heard it. I don't understand this exactly, but it does come to pass. So, you know, maybe you're out there and and you're hearing this. These are some, this is some rough, rough stuff. Epiphany being a wonderful scene, uh, a wonderful idea that the Gentiles can come to the knowledge of of the Messiah, that they can be brought into the kingdom. Wonderful, wonderful thing. Wonderful thing to celebrate. To see the gifts that they brought and how they honored him and saw him as king. But really, the emphasis of the story of the Magi is not a positive one at all. It's a negative one. It's a negative one on how easily the people of God miss what God is doing. How we become so absorbed in our own self and our own life. And oftentimes we feel that God is not there. He's not a part of it. And we go on. And that's what these people did. These people went on and they built a life for themselves. They sought their own. They didn't seek God's. And God judged them. And they missed the coming of the Messiah. We need to be watching God. We need to be looking at what God is doing and not missing it. You know, I as uh, looking at the presidency that we've been given, I really think that we have God using uh, our president to do great things. And the Christians of our nation and a lot of the ones in our movement, they rail against him as though somehow he's, you know, the worst guy on earth. And I'm not for the ungodly things that he has done and said. But don't miss what God might be doing through our president. Don't fail to pray for him. Uh, don't just live our lives complaining. But there's something to rejoice about. Um, God's kingdom will come. His will will be done on earth as it is in heaven. And if he has to use uh, a Donald Trump to make that happen, uh, if he brings judgment on us uh, because we miss what he's doing in the world and this causes us to be br- our attention to be brought back to the word of God, if we focus on our secondaries and not on the core of the gospel, you know, he'll raise up people that we think are idiots and God can have revival come through them and conversions and wonderful things happen while we are, you know, sharpening our pencils and making sure we have everything right. um, We can really miss out on the wonderful things of God. And we need to understand too, in this story, this is a story of humility and humbling. Here, God humbles them by causing these deaths, by causing them by their own leader and, uh, and bringing them to a place where understanding that that our part of the story is small. And the smaller we get in the story and the greater God gets, then the better our story. You know, a lot of people joke about me being a larger-than-life personality. And honestly, uh, the more of that there is, the more that I wish it wasn't. I want God to be larger in me, I you know I want and not not that there's any competition. <laughs> That's not what I'm saying. Well, there is probably in my own heart and in the hearts of men, you know. But not I I don't want I don't want to distract uh, anyone from God. You know, John the Baptist wasn't a bad guy, but he understood this principle: I must decrease 
that Christ might increase. I am praying that what God is doing in our church will last for hundreds and hundreds of years or thousands to the to whenever Christ returns in his kingdom fully. Um, I would love for something that we do here to last. And I think if we can be humble and we can see the greatness and gloriousness of God and stop looking at our own situation with a microscope and worrying so much about if we're going to you know, do anything great and we just day by day live our lives in humility and quietness before the Lord and disciple our children. I really believe that over time, the weakness of who we are, the smallness of who we are is where God will receive the most glory. As it says in the Sermon on the Mount, that men will see our good works and glorify our Father which is in heaven. May we indeed be lights on a hill, a city that can't be hid in a dark world. May the light of our good works shine and bring glory to our Father. May you today, as you celebrate Epiphany with your family, if you hear this today, or maybe even you hear it tomorrow, Monday, may you uh, celebrate the light of the gospel that cannot be put out and the, and the small role we play in the great and mighty God that we serve. May the Lord be with you today. May you love each other. May we pass on these things to our children. Uh, greet one another. When you see your brothers and sisters again, greet them with a holy kiss. Amen.